0: Please join me in welcoming
1: Rabbi Dr. Simcoe. Thank you very much for an introduction. It would make my mother feel very proud. (laughs) Uh, I thank Rabbi Linden for the uh, invitation to be here, and uh, Rabbi Yankowitz for for the invitation to be here, and also to Sandy Wright. And I thank all of you for being here, because if you were not here, I would have no reason to be here. So I would like to begin our evening of learning with a bracha for Torah study, with a blessing for Torah study, but I want to introduce it in the following way. There's a rabbinic teaching, and I'll cite it in Hebrew, translate it in English, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Al devarim ha HaOlam made. Does anybody want to start singing that one? Right. The world stands on three things, Al Torah, Al haavadab Al Gamilut chasadim. So what, Torah, right, our, our, our process of learning. Avodah, what's avodah? Work. work but it's also understood spiritual work. There's so spiritual practices. And gemilut chasadim, <laughs> the, the act of loving kindness, also committees, right? <laughs> so so the, the thrust of Jewish life is to study Torah, to, to engage in prayer practices, and to work to make the world a better place. And and that's sort of the way in which communities develop. What's less known is that we can also use that framework to think about the relationship between the world of the living and the world beyond. And I'm going to do it in reverse order in the (laughs) following way Gemilut chasadim, deeds of loving kindness. At the time of a Yorkshire, the anniversary of a death, what are some things that we do? We're going to show what else? Light a candle. Light a candle. What's
0: that?
1: No, at, at the anniversary of death. We, don't, we 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 say a kaddish, and there's one other activity we do: give tzedakah. Give right. We make a charitable contribution. And why do we do that? To honor the dead, and, and you know, we get a 501c3 tax tax receipt. But in in the pre-modern Jewish world, the understanding, the traditional understanding, is that our act of giving tzedakah. Has a beneficent effect on the state of the soul on the other side. That how it, that's how it was always traditionally understood. Avodah prayer. When we say a Kaddish, why do we say Kaddish? Come on, you're, 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 all, you're all such passionate learners. I mean, I'm going to ask you a question. I want, I, right, why do we say Kaddish? To
0: elevate their soul. Well,
1: we think often that we say Kaddish because it's a good bereavement ritual. But again, the traditional understanding is that our act of saying Kaddish has an effect on the state of the soul on the other side. Same thing with studying Torah. If you've ever been to a traditional home during the week of Shiva, they study something in the afternoons often. What do they study? They don't study Torah, because Torah is pleasurable. Right, and we study Mishnah. Mishnah is sort of post-biblical Jewish law, of which Pirkei Avot is part of it. And if you throw up the letters of Mishnah, it lands down and it spells neshama, soul. So we study Mishnah because it's good for the neshama. The belief is that our act of studying has an effect on the state of the soul on the other side. So I'm going to offer a bracha for Torah study, but before I do that, I just want to invite you to call out the names of some of those folks that you're thinking of on the other side. We do not have, have to do it one at a time, we can all do it together and create a cacophony of sounds of names of those people to whom we want to dedicate our study.
0: Please.
1: <laughs> It's getting very crowded in here. Rabbi, you noticed you haven't had such a crowd in, in the study hall in a while. So to all of those named and unnamed, may, may, may the merit of our study be, be on, uh, for the sake of the z'chut of your neshama. And join me in the bracha, if you know it, or say amen. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech asher B'Mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Holy one, a blessing, and give us this chance to soak in the words of Torah as one of my friends translates that. So, <clears throat> people say to me, actually, Rashmuli and I were talking earlier, they so, said, you know, how had to get into this. So, when I was um, 21, I had a friend, and he was at my house one night, and we were cooking a meal together, and um, he was from an Orthodox Jewish home, and it was a Saturday evening, and he'd say, you know, every, every Mutzay Shabbos, he would go visit his, his father, and uh, so I said, you know, we said goodbye, and I actually had a, a, a date coming over that night, and I, you know, cooked the meal, and then we went out to, to a cafe out on the streets of Montreal. At 2 o'clock in the morning, I walk out, and I see a full moon, and I say to her, there's something very auspicious about that full moon. I don't know what it is, but there's something very auspicious about it. I go home, I go to sleep, and 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, I get a call telling me the friend who had been with me early in the evening had just been killed in a car accident. You drive 160 miles an hour around an embankment, and that happens. It was, you know, we weren't wearing seatbelts in the same way in 1973, so 74. And if somebody would have said to me, Simcha, you're going to spend the next... 30, 40 years of your life talking to people about death and life after death, I would have said, that's somebody else's life. Thank you very much. But, A, life doesn't always just unfold the way we imagine it. And, two, I I became very curious what happened. You know, I told you the story that we had cooked a meal together. I walked back in the house during the week of the Shiva, and there were leftovers from what we had cooked together. And I thought, oh, yes, he put his energy into that food. Is he still there? I remember we were burying him. The name of the cemetery was Mount Pleasant Park. You know, with, with all due respect, there was nothing pleasant about burying a 21-year-old kid in the middle of a cold Montreal winter at, in, 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 in Mount Pleasant Park. And I began, like, where are I, I could feel some sense of presence. And during the year, he appeared to me a number of times in dreams. And later I found out that Sefer Haim, the rabbis say that the dead appeared to us in dreams. But when I asked what Judaism had to say about life after death, there was this uncomfortable sense of, oh, I'm not, I'm, we don't believe, or we're not sure, or many beliefs, but we don't have any. It, 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 it was... I was, it was almost like an embarrassment because in those years I date myself. You know, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Mia Farrow and the Beatles were <laughs> meditating together and, you know, I was hanging out with the gurus. I, I had a guru, some of you might have, his name was Swami Mashugananda. <laughs> <laughs> some of you had heard of that. So I was, you know, I was, I was of that vintage and I knew I had already studied religious studies. I knew there were teachings on on, a, on life after death all around the world, and Judaism had this incredible sense of not only nothing but a discomfort about the topic so in a way, in writing Jewish views of the afterlife where i got a copy of my book over here, Some of you want to bring me a copy of the book it 's good publicity in writing in writing I'll go in. in writing the book, I basically wrote the book I would have wanted to read when I was 21, and my friend was killed in a car accident. And I spent 10 years because my teacher, Reb Zalman, said, oh, afterlife, you want to go here and here and here. You know, I don't see your publicity in your bulletin, but did you tell them we were going to time travel? So imagine we could time travel back to the world of the Hasidic masters and the Kabbalists and interview them and say, what do you have to say about life after death? So you already have the transcript of the interview in the in, in the text there. So it turns out in the 12th to 16th century, and a little bit beyond that, and a little bit before that, there's a, an incredible amount of information about life after death. And so that's what I'm going to talk about in a little while. I'm going to tell you a Hasidic story, and we'll look at some texts, and, and we'll talk. But first, I have the mic, so I get to ask the first question. So, you know, imagine one of your, your, your non-Jewish friends, one of your kids comes up. You know, you go to all those interesting lectures. What do you have to say? What does Judaism have to say about life after death? What do you tell them? Who said nothing? So it's going to be a very short lecture here tonight. Pardon? Yeah, no, but so what did you learn? I, I, I get to ask, what, what did you learn? Look around the room and see these wonderful looks of confusion on people's face. Like, why is he asking this question? We came here to learn that. What When you were a young person and somebody died. Yeah, please.
0: Mention Sheol.
1: Sheol, okay. He mentions in
0: Genesis about this man walking with God and not without going through the pain of death.
1: Okay, so Enoch Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. So he actually never died.
0: And we have the story of the prophets who you know, they ascended in a chariot.
1: Elijah also never dies.
0: And we have Ezekiel who sees these Spaceships, landing, I don't know. About right, but so
1: what happens to Bubby Jenny when she dies? So, you know, Bubby Jenny wouldn't make it onto the spaceship. She would be waiting around for a gefilte fish to be finished being made. Right? So we have little vignettes. What are some of the other little vignettes? You know, if I teach at a Catholic university. And if I was here in a room full of my Catholic students and I put, and I said this question, what did you learn about life after death? Everybody would put up their hand whether they believed in it or not. So notice... This kind of. Um, what, would, what would you know? I'm like I'm looking at your face like, why is he even asking me this question? Right? How come we don't have any answers to that question?
0: I, yeah, please. I think that the Jewish emphasis on living in the here and now became so extreme that it led to us not even.
1: Right. So how many of you heard something like this? Judaism believes in life and the living, the here and now, we're not so much interested in other, uh, like other religions are, right? So that was, in, in a way, that was a software package of, of, of 20th century Judaism, and what I want to say is, it's true, but it's only half true. What's true is that Judaism believes in life and the living. For Judaism, there's never a sense of, of the world beyond is much better than this one, let's, you know, let's get out of here quickly. It, within Judaism, we, we perform mitzvot in this world, and, and the long-term vision is not to transcend this world, but to, in a sense, make this world holy, to, to divinize this world, to, you know, to, to bring a Mashiach consciousness into this world. So that part is true. But that doesn't mean Judaism doesn't believe in, in, in the hereafter. In the world of Isaac Basheve Singer and the Hasidic masters, there was never any question about it. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? <laughs> right? So what's his name? From a Sarah's coming through the other side. That was part of Yiddish folk culture. Very much. It wasn't like they were sitting around. There was, you know, there was Moshe and there was Shmuli. And he's like, well, Moshe, do you believe in afterlife? I'm not so sure, you know, i read Plato. It didn't happen like that. They would say, when you walk into Shul in the morning, knock on the door because that's where the spirits hang out. There were Hasidic masters who would hold somebody's tefillin and read their past lives. And, you know, um, Reverend Shweli and I were talking earlier in, in the Kriyat Shma al the, the 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 nighttime prayer that's in the Orthodox Siddur, it says, God, forgive me for anyone I harmed in this incarnation or any other incarnation. So there are all of these strands and yet We lost touch with them. It's not that Judaism doesn't believe in life after death. So that's the one thing I want to say. Modern Judaism lost touch with belief in life after death. But for Judaism, there's always been a belief in life after death. One more disclaimer before I'm going to go forward in a minute. Um, When I was first writing the book, I wrote this line, the Jews have always believed in life after death. And one of my professors who read that said, you can't say that. Do Jews believe in life after death? Some do and some don't. Judah, you could say Judaism, has, in the pre-modern world, Judaism has always believed in life after death. But Jews, some do and some don't. So I'm not selling belief. Because if you say, I don't believe, and I say believe, then we're in an adversarial relationship. And I'm not interested in an adversarial relationship. Okay, there's always, you know, actually I'm looking around, It's a much, a very friendly room. You know, you have a nice congregation here. I'm going to put the mic down for a second. There's always a guy in a a synagogue on Sunday morning sitting with a big fat ring looking like this saying, I don't believe in any of this afterlife crap. Now let's start to talk. So if that's you, I'm cool. You know, I'm not selling belief. I will sell the book after, okay? But I'm not selling belief, but I at least want you to hear what Judaism has to say. And it's up to you to do your own meaning making because ain't none of us getting out of here alive. And I'm not talking about tonight, okay? <laughs> my Auntie Rose says, my Auntie Rose is like 94 years old. She buried two husbands. You know, she goes to the Chabad Rabbi. <laughs> she says, you know, you say, you know, we're, we're going to see everybody when the Mashiach comes, but I don't, remember, I don't know if I'm going to see Jack or if i can see Joe, and I'm not sure I want to see either of them, you know. <laughs> so she says, everyone has their expiry date tattooed on their body. She says, mine's on my tuchus. I can't see it, and I don't worry about it. <laughs> to which I said, Auntie Rose, it's a good thing, because if, if you could see your tuchus from, behind, from the back, you would drop dead. <laughs> so th- in my family, there was a lot of trauma, a lot of death. So we at least have learned to talk about it and laugh about it. So given the reality of human mortality, I just want to say tonight, I'm going to talk about afterlife and invite you to have conversations in your home and with each other and your family about what it all means. Okay, in a second I'm going to tell you a story, we're going to study text. Any comments, questions, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of an informal guy, so please.
0: Why did modernity um, change the pre-modern view of the Judaism's?
1: Well, I think there were a number of different reasons. Actually, one, one I wanted to originally title this book, Jewish Reads of the Afterlife, I wanted to call it, Is There Afterlife After Auschwitz? My publisher didn't think it was a good idea. But, I, but that's the first title, the t- first chapter of, of, of the book. Um, after Auschwitz, nobody wants to talk about afterlife. You know, given scientific, you know, what was that famous psychologist Simcha, Simcha, Simcha Freud, Right after Simcoe <laughs> Freud, you know, he said, religion is a universal obsession on neurosis. After Freud, nobody wants to talk about Akhleff. He says, human beings invented the notion of spirits and ghosts standing in the presence of a death, dead body. There's also a sense that, well, Christians believe in heaven and hell, we don't. Um, you know, olam haba is sometimes understood to be the world beyond as opposed to the world of the dead. You know, so there's, there's a lot of complexity in Jewish tradition. But that, again... There's a there's a lot of good reasons why we don't have access to it, but I would say a lot of it is sort of the scientific secular discomfort with non-rational ideas. When the Jews came into Ellis Island, they threw away their their I, I heard, you know, I know whether it's really true or not. I think if they do some underwater archaeology, it might be interesting. But they wanted to be more modern. They wanted to fit in. So we we are we're, we're in the in, in the midst of a spiritual reclamation and reclaiming it. Okay, yeah, please. Does the Torah talk about after directly, or is
0: it um, implied like through studying and analysis?
1: Well, there are nuances. Uh, you could almost infer from from sort of uh, almost like an anthropological way when 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 Jacob says, uh, when, when the Torah doesn't use, a, in the book of Brashit, the book of Genesis doesn't use the word death that much. They say, and Jacob was gathered to his ancestors. So there's some sense of death was understood to be while we were alive we were hanging out with the family clan over here and when we were dead we were hanging out with the ancestors over here. Or Saul goes with, Samuel go, goes to the prophet to the witch of Endor to draw up from the, from the underworld the spirit of Samuel. So there are elements of it but a full developed philosophy of afterlife there is not. What I'm going to do now is go into... The world of Kabbalah, which I think has the richest piece, but but Kabbalistic ideas did not emerge out of the blue. They're based on rabbinic ideas. Yeah, please. Um, those of us who
0: don't believe in an afterlife obviously have no need to. Why does a believer need to? Believe?
1: Well, I, 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 you know, I, I think what I want to say is I, I want, I want to suspend the answer to that question and raise it like this. In what way do notions about life after death help us think a little bit more clearly about what life means and about what death means? In what way do notions about life after death help us understand some of those experiences that go on for people as they're dying or help people deal with death and and grief? So that's what I want to answer by what I'm going to teach tonight. Okay? All right. All right, so I, I need to define two words for you, or I need you to define two words for me. What's the difference between Kabbalah and Hasidism? Because we're going to go into those databases of, of information. If I say Kabbalah, what is besides saying Madonna?
0: Right? <laughs> <laughs> what? Hidden knowledge. Hidden Hidden knowledge. knowledge. <laughs> the secret traditions that have been passed down to elite students in each generation.
1: It's right, the Kabbalah to receive. And, and historically... Around like 11th, 12th century, Kabbalah emerges as, as, there's some earlier antecedents, but but the notion of Kabbalah sort of emerges in the 11th, 12th century. And Kabbalah is kind of a metaphysical system that explores the mysteries of the universe, the creation of the universe, the creation of the individual soul, and then what happens to the soul after death. And the main text of Kabbalah is the Zohar. And the Zohar actually became very popular because of the printing press. The Zohar emerged a few centuries before the printing press. And with the printing press, it sort of spreads from, from, from Spain and, and in, into both Central and, and eventually into Eastern Europe. The Jews from Morocco, when they came to Israel in the 50s, they did not have in their knapsacks the Herz Chumash. They had a copy of the Zohar. It, you know, it was part of it. So that's, so that's Kabbalah. And Hasidism is more of a populist movement that begins in, in Lithuania and Ukraine in the 1700s. And what Hasidism does, the Baal Shem Tov is sort of the founder of Hasidism. And it takes the notions of Kabbalah and, and, and in a way popularizes them, it brings them much more to the masses, through, through a lot through storytelling and through sort of the, the, the mystical activities of the Rebbe. Um, But it was a mainstream movement. In the year 1900, the nephew of the Gerer Rebbe, one of the big Hasidic dynasties, was in the Polish parliament. That wasn't a fringe movement. That was a mainstream movement. So what I'm going to do is tell you a story from Hasidism that embodies some of the ideas that are found in Kabbalah and then we'll look at some texts and we'll put them in a blender with a little bit of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Californian psychology, and we'll, we'll see what Judas mass say about life after death. Okay, so here's a story told of Reb of Lzensk. This is sort of my, my afterlife story. And Reb of was one of the early and great Hasidic masters, and in his lifetime, he had a friend who was a great Torah scholar, and his friend comes up to him and says, uh, my time to rapidly to leave the world is approaching. Can you do me a favor? So Eli Melech says, "Sure." You know what? What kind of favor do you need? He says, uh, "Look, my son hasn't been educated in the ways of the Jewish people. Can you take care of my son and educate him?" And, and Eli Melech says, "Sure, I will, but on one condition." This is a good story. You want to hear this story? On, on one condition. So uh, he says, "What's the condition?" He says. He says, we, uh, I'll, 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 I'll educate your son on the condition that you come back and tell me what it's like on the other side. So they shake, it's a gentleman's agreement, and Rabbi Elimelech does everything to educate the son. You know, comes time for the bar mitzvah, they had like two bands at the bar mitzvah. You know, he really does this fully with great integrity up to the time of the wedding. Because in this ed- in this culture, if you're gonna if you're gonna educate a young Booker, you also want him to do a shidduch and arranged marriage, and you know, and, the, and then the text said you know she had had a master's degree, had been to the orthodontist, you know, he like he does this with full integrity. Except it was a problem. Comes the afternoon of the wedding, and the groom's family is there, and the bride's family is there, and Reb Elimelech was nowhere to be seen. This was a problem. You know the ordos were getting cold. The caterer was getting fetchy. and, and you know and, and they couldn't find the Rebbe. They, they wait an hour. They wait two hours. They send them, they send one of his one of his talmidim, one of his dudes, to go look in the keyhole of the Rebbe's study. The Rebbe was meditating. Now you know that if the Rabbi's meditating, nobody will disturb him under any circumstances whatsoever, right? Finally, that wait. After three hours, he comes and, and, and he does the wedding. Oh, by the way, you have a part in this story. They, 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 they put down the glass, they break the glass, and they cry out. <laughs> put down the glass, they break the glass, and they cry out. Baseltov! Okay, that's much better, much better. At the, at the reception, Rebele Melach gets up to address the guests. He says, I suppose you were wondering where I was. So let me tell you a story. So he tells the guest the story of the arrangement he had made with the groom's late father. And he said, here, I had fulfilled my part of the bargain and he had fulfilled his part of the bargain. And I decided I was going to wait. I wasn't going to come to the wedding until he shows up. And I'm sitting there and I hear, Ali Halimelech. Ali and I go, Chaim, Chaim, is that you? What was it like? He said the following. He said the moment of death was absolutely painless. It was like taking hair out of milk. And I could see all the people standing around, and they're crying, and they're shrying And I say, Stop! I'm here! I'm here! But they couldn't hear me. They couldn't see me. I figured, you know what? They made a mistake. They'll figure it out. And I could see the Hebra Kedisha, the burial society, washing and preparing my body. And again, I say, You're wasting your time! I'm right over here! And again, I wasn't heard or I wasn't seen. So I figured, You know what? They'll bury me. I'll come back. I'll explain to them it was a mistake and it'll all be okay. And the procession goes out to the cemetery and everybody leaves and then I have this burning desire. I have to get back home and I start digging out frantically trying to get out of there and, and and it's starting to thunder and lightning and and i think maybe i should stay here no, no no no! i knew i had to go home back home and i'm digging thunder and lightning is coming and i have to build a raft to get across the raging river and i think I, maybe i should go no maybe i should stay do i go do i stay do i go to the stay? i got so, so confused and i cried help and all of a sudden i see before my eyes this great 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 being of light And this being of light says, don't you know you're no longer in the world of confusion? You've entered the universe of truth. And instantly I see before my eyes a panoramic vision of every single deed I've ever done in my life. And I know I have to stand for judgment. And the judgment comes down from the heaven tribunal that basically I've been a God-fearing man. Basically I've tried to serve my creator so I don't enter into Gehenna purgatory. But, since there are ways in which I could have more fully fulfilled my destiny, more fully served my creator, I certainly could have paid my synagogue dues on time. <laughs> I don't enter into Gan Eden, the heavenly garden of Eden. So what's going to happen to me, I ask. So I'm assigned a resting place in between Gehenna and Gan Eden, where on one hand I see the lofty, I see, I see the torments of Gehenna And and my soul is cleansed of further defilements. And I see the lofty heights of Gan Eden and my soul ascends higher and higher and higher. And there I stay. Now it says in Jewish tradition that on Shabbat all souls are released from Gehenna. The first Shabbat comes. I enter into Gan Eden and it was fantastic. It was sublime. It was blissful. It was delightful. Shabbat ends The messenger of the heaven tribunal says, come on, you have to go to resting place between Gehenna and Gan Eden. I said, forget it. I like it here. He says, no, no, you have to go. I said, no, no. I studied Torah with Rebeli Melech of So you tell them that that should be on my merit record and I should be able to stay here. So the messenger comes to the heaven, goes and comes back from the heaven tribunal and says, it has been determined on high that you shall, in fact, merit your place in Gan Eden. Eventually. But it's also known that in your lifetime you made a promise to Rebeli Melech Abbezinsk. And until you fulfill that promise to Rebel Melechabozhensk, you can't rightfully take your place in Ghanaian. So Rebeli Melech is telling the story to the guests. And he says, So he said to him, Come on, let's go. You know, we gotta make a we gotta go to your son's wedding. So he said, You go to the wedding and you make a lachaim on my behalf. And when you get there, tell everybody at the wedding this story. And ask them to tell everyone they know this story and to make lechayim on my behalf and to ask them to keep telling everyone they know this story and to make lechayim on my behalf. So lechayim, 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 and I share with you that story exactly as I first heard it. Do you remember years ago on PBS, whatever your local PBS network is, Joseph Campbell used to do a talk about mythology. And his, his, his shita, if you will, his approach was to say, we need to look at myth with a different set of eyes and ask the question, what's the meaning making that we get in this story? So I've just told, so Joseph Campbell were here, and say, I told you a myth of the, of the afterlife journey of the soul, and what meaning making do we do with that story? So I want to weave some conversation about that story and the text and, 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 and that, and, and, and anybody want to comment on that story at all? Okay, so here, here's where I want to go with it. The way we ask the question about life after death has to do with how we answer the question about what it means to be human. The way we answer the question about life after death has to do with how we answer the question about what it means to be alive. So in the normative scientific understanding, consciousness, knowing, is a product of the firing of synapses of the brain. The brain fires, right, as right now, you know, the brain is firing the part that does auditory processing, the part that does visual processing, the parts that do cognitive processing, the brain system is all working. I teach classes at 8.30 in the morning to college students. I'm not sure the brain system is all working at that point. But, you know, looking in the room here, I see that, you know, there's, there's a lot of synapses firing. So, in that model, what happens when a person dies? The brain flatlines, right? The brain, dead is dead, and there's no knowing, and there's no consciousness. So that's one model. That is, for many people, that is the model. That's certainly the materialistic scientific view of life and death. And a lot of medical science is based upon that. And you know, and I, I know a lot of doctors who who were trained, and that you know, they never asked the question about does consciousness survive bodily death, because that was never on on the agenda. And then, and then people have these near-death experiences where they completely flatline and they come back and they tell you what was going on in the conversation in the room and that. So it, it, it begins to challenge the, the paradigm. Another view of life and death is what I call the, the, the two-floored elevator, right? So while you're alive, you're alive. And when you're dead, you have a choice. You can go either up or down, right? So if you go down. What's it look like? Dark, fire, hot, hell, right? You have images in your mind, right? Other images, right? Guess where those images come from? Christian Renaissance art. We, we have been pickled in the brine of American Protestantism, which picks up the history and the legacy of Christian Renaissance art. I say heaven and I say, and I say "Hell, you don't think of Abraham sitting at the gates of Gunhaden. Right? We right? What's heaven look like? You go up. Angels, Angels. What, 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 what a Light. Clouds. What else? Gates, clouds. Who said clouds? You know why there's clouds? They let you smoke at the bar. So that's another, that's another model. The Kabbalistic model is, is even different than that. To be human, or according to the, if you will, the Kabbalistic model of the soul, is to be an amalgam of multiple potentialities, multiple functioning. And let me and don't take my word for it here, I'm going I'm to show you the the physical realm, like how you doing sitting in the chairs? You know these chairs are comfortable, right? You know it's it, it, how's the how's how's the uh, how, how's the climate control here? I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm a little bit hot, but I'm not used to living in a desert climate, right? So that's that's our physicality. Surrounding and interpenetrating the physical body is the emotional body. You sometimes walk by a, a homeless person on the street. And it's palpable. You could feel their sadness, or sometimes, you know, I I, I know, like I'm i in the doghouse in my own house because I pissed off my wife, and I walk in, and it could be 90 degrees in the room, but it feels very chilly. You know, <laughs> so the vibe is like, it, you know, is it, it, right, but it, but it, it it's palpable. So the emotional climate in this room, you know, it feels good. You know, some of you know each other. There's good feel. You know, like right. Surrounding and interpenetrating the physical and the emotional body is the mental energy field, not just the cognitive mind that sort of does discursive stuff. You know, I'm looking at the faces in the room, and you're going, like, I think this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm not sure yet, you know, like, the, right? But there's another part of the mind that is, like, if I flashed a picture up here uh, taken from the Hubble telescope and you saw the universe, you'd go, like, wow. Right, so there's a higher mind that sort of perceives holes, and, you know, it's, it, 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 there's a part of us that, like, comprehends reality in, in moments. So that's part of being human, too. And then beyond that, there's another realm that is the realm of spirit, the place where we plug into the universe, where we plug into God where, where one, one, one of the saints said, the eye with which I, Meister Eckhart said, the eye with which I see God, and the eye with which God sees me is the same eye. So here I'm in my own individuality and in my body, and there's an emotional vibe, and there's consciousness, and there's knowing, but somewhere we're all beyond our own individuality interconnected. So that's the Kabbalistic model of the soul that actually corresponds with the four letters of the divine name, the yod heh you know, when, when, you know, my teacher used to joke and say, you know, what's God's name? Harold, our father who art in heaven. Harold, be thy name. Right? <laughs> so when Moses says, you know, what's your name? Say, says, eh, he, eh, asher, eh, he, I will be what I will be. But the, 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 what, what the Protestant scholars incorrectly call Yahweh and what the, the German biblical scholars call Jehovah and what we say as Adonai is really the yud He bah hey. And if you look at it, it looks like a person. Here's the legs, the heart, and the arms. And so, we are in the divine image an amalgam of all of those. According to Kabbalah, when the body dies, the other parts of our humanness have to go through various layers of purging and processing. Okay? So, the terms that use, and this is what I'm going to explain in a minute, are chibuta Keber, which is about leaving go of the attachments to the body, gehenna, which is emotional purgation or purification. By the way, my charts go from the bottom on up. You have this chart over there. Gan Eden, the Heavenly Garden of Eden, and Shror HaChayim, where where one goes back to be in connection with God. So that's my my, um, point and click, and I'm going to go over all of those phases with you. Okay? So what I'm saying is that in the Kabbalistic model, in the Jewish mystical model, death is a is a process of going through a multi-level stages of cleansing and purification. You know, are any of you from the Northeast? Because I, I don't have any, like, right? So if I wanted it used to, now I can use a GPS, but I used to call AAA and say, I need to get from Philadelphia to Boston. And they would say, well, you go to the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and then you take the New Jersey Turnpike, and then you take the New York State Thruway, and then you take the Mass Turnpike, right? So... This is a model of multiple stages that I'm going to now talk about. You still with me? Um, OK. All right. So let's go. Um, can I get somebody to read? I want, I, want to, I want to talk about the first stage, if you will, of the afterlife journey. How many of you? Uh, actually, let's get somebody to read it. And I'll come. You want to read the first one there? Uh, just so you're on the same page. Turn, turn over. From the chart uh, to the first one, Chibut HaKever. Just a, we're re, we're now in uh, 12th century Guadalajara, Spain. The Zohar is a mystical commentary on the Torah. How many of you have heard this phrase? Judaism doesn't have much to say about the. Judaism believes in that, like, but we have no details. Here's a detail, please.
0: Rabbi
1: You work in the cemetery business. You got to. You should know that one. They they, they teach you yeah. that. They teach you that in the funeral For seven days, the soul goes to and fro from his house to his grave, mourning for the body. What do you make of that one? What do you make of that one? Bizarre. Okay, I got I I got where you're coming from. I want to hear some other point of view. What is what is what is what does it correspond with? Shiva. Shiva. Oh, that's very interesting. So Kibbuta kever is said to be a three to seven day period of time when the soul is potentially confused as to whether it's alive or dead. I say potentially because you know how some people can go through life's experience and they shake off the loss and the disappointment and they go forward and other people have losses and grief and disappointments and they go through life bitching and moaning and it may be that some people are able to die more elegantly and more gracefully, and other people, their death is much more problematic and, and traumatic. But Judaism teaches, regardless of one's belief I at least want you to understand what Judaism has to say Judaism teaches that there seems to be a kind of transitional phase after death when the soul or an aspect of the soul potentially sticks around. Now here it is, it's the third night of the Shiva. You couldn't have another cold cut if they gave it to you intravenously.
0: <laughs>
1: Uncle Lou just left, so you don't have to hear any more of the sexist humor. And the two sisters are sitting around and saying, Didn't it feel like daddy was in the room? And people have an uncanny sense of felt presence. The old bereavement model was if somebody has a sense of presence, you say, you know, you're hallucinating. The newer model says, well, what does that mean to you? What, what, you know, what's your own sense of that? Or there are, there are countless stories of, of you know, there certainly, there are Clasidic stories of, you know, a Rebbe is, is in the middle of davening and, and, and he stops and he says, you know, reb so-and-so in such a town just died. You know, and he didn't couldn't go check his email and get, you know, but you know, seventy-two hours later somebody comes to his tent and tells him at the exact moment so-and-so died. Or people have dreams of the night before of somebody sort of coming to them in the death. What I want to say is that notion of a kind of gradual process of transition seems to be part of Jewish tradition. What do we do at the end of Shiva? Go on a diet. Yeah. What else? Why do we walk around the block?
2: It's supposed to be
1: a right, On one hand, it's like, I have taken this time out of time, and now I'm going to get back into life. But there's also a part that's saying to the soul, we have taken this time, and now we can walk you this far, but now you have to go the rest of the way on your own. Rabbi Linden, I want to tell you this story. My wife did, when we got up from saying Shiva for her father, it was the week of Parshat Vayechi, of Jacob's death, and she said, it says in the Torah that Jacob was gathered to his ancestors. So I would feel better if I heard from all of you, who are the ancestors to whom my father is being gathered? And we went around the room and... We named some of our contemporaries who had died, and my father-in-law's first cousin was there, and he named their mutual grandmother. And then, you know, we did that for a while, and then we got up and we walked around the block. And whether or not one believes in afterlife, that helps people. It gives people a sense of comfort to feel that sense of interconnectedness, so so I'm sure you've sat with the families a few times at the end of a shiva, and, and I, I I often think about that. So that anybody, anybody have any comments? Because you know people have been through shivas, and you know it's like oh that was a great shiva. Who catered that one? You know you know but, but but shiva on one hand is a very effective bereavement ritual, but it's also a time of transition. It's also a time of sending the soul on its journey. Because the work, the psychological work for the bereaved is letting go and accepting the reality of death. The spiritual work is sort of escorting or helping the soul on its journey. Anyone? Comments? Questions? Okay. I'm going to keep going. I want to do a couple of, of, other, of, of other texts. And then, then I'm going to have to talk about Gehenna. And I have to make sure I have enough time to get in and out of Gehenna and not leave you stuck there. Um, someone else want to, want to read... Uh, um, you want you want to read the one about familial beings? Can you re, you read that one?
0: Sure. Rabbi Shlomo said, "Have you seen today the image of your body? For so many times that at the hour of the departure from the world, his passes and is judgment and gathered back. He sees them and
1: recognizes them, likewise all with whom he associated in this world, they accompany his soul to the place where it is to abide." So. There's one level of the, these. These are very comparable with the near-death experiences where people who are sort of pronounced clinically dead come back. But here you have in a 12th century Jewish text saying one sees, I call it the, the, the mummy daddy, babi, zedi level, sort of seeing somebody of the family. And, and, and the nurses report that. You know, the guy is totally riddled with cancer. And he gets, he says, oh, my brother, my brother. And he runs across the room. And, you know, and they, of course they strap him back down and give him Thorazine. And then he dies that night. Or I had, a, I had a bereavement client who told me the story that she was sitting at her mother's bedside and her mother looks up and says, oh, my mother's here. Mom, I never introduced you to my daughter. The dying woman has a vision of her deceased mother and is introducing her deceased mother to the, the daughter. I say to somebody, who do you imagine being there for you? You know, my mother was 10 years old when her father was killed in a car accident. I come to this naturally because there was a lot of death in my family. And I said to her, you know, she was like 85 years old. I said, Mike, you're going to see your father. When you go, she was like, she lit up. It was like she hadn't seen her father in seventy-five years, but just that notion. So we have this in the tradition. Somebody else, want you want to read the, the next one? The the mythic guides. Yeah.
2: The first man, sitting at the gate of Gan Eden. Ready to welcome all who observe commands of their master. No man leaves this world before he sees these, the Shekinah. The and with the Shekinah, there come three ministering angels to receive the soul of the righteous.
1: So, this is sort of the mythic level. So, the near death experiences the Hindus see Krishna, and the Christians see Jesus, and the Buddhists see the Buddha, and the Jews see someone from the Federation. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a dearth of iconography, but there seem to be these two layers that are described cross-culturally. You know, this is in the Jewish text, but it's also described some sense of a helper being. So I had an uncle who was of the vintage that he ran away from the Tsar's army and came, came to Canada. Right, um, his his motto was a "Hero Israel, the dollar or God." The dollar is one. You know, like many of his generation. You know, he worked twenty hours a day, and you know, he made his fortune. And he was rapidly anti-religious. Uh, I mean, he was over eighty years old, and I wanted to make habdalah in his house, and he, you yeah, I don't believe. Okay, I, I, I won't do it. I won't do it. Don't throw me out. He literally wanted to throw me out for just wanting to light a habdalah candle. And another visit, he said, "I nearly died." And Rabban Gamliel came and said, Yonah, it's not your time. His name was, uh, we call him Uncle Yonah. His name was John, Yonah. And who showed up for him in his near-death experiences? Rabbi Gamliel from his Talmudic youth in a yeshiva in, 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 in Saragara, So... What that taught, I mean, that, that was, and this was not an educated man who read, oh, I, I read uh, Raymond Moody, and like, you know, he, no! You know, he, here was a guy who was uneducated, who worked his whole life, and he had a near death experience, and Rabban Ganiel shows up for him. So, what it taught me is there seems to be a kind of archetype, if you will, as Jung would say, like like, somehow an image of a helper, and then an archetypal image. It gets painted in different cultural nuances. So, the the Christians will see a Christian image and and actually you know the kids today when they have near death experiences you know who showed up for them Yoda Yoda seems to be an an inter inter, inter inter interdimensional traveler so I don't know exactly this how this stuff this happens but I want to say A it's in the tradition and B I think the the pastoral implications for me is that I can honestly say to people who are dying When you're ready to go, it's okay, and you're not going to be alone. I think that's the fear that people hold, that in their dying, they're going to be alone. And when I see this stuff, and when I hear the anecdotal evidence that comes right across the board from people, and and some of them are just uncanny, there's some sense of being able to say, you know what, when I check out of here, somebody's going to be there. You know, now we knew when you know, my mother died, my father was going to be late. He was going to probably be running around Home Depot because he was never in on time. You know? but, but, you know, somewhere they would have had their, their, their rendezvous. Val well, Harold, why are you late? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Comments? Questions? I we were
0: just the
1: science. So, there's two cycles. One cycle, si- if I had a board, I have a board. Use. One cycle is, you know, God acts in history. And God creates the world, and God says, "I was with the people at Sinai, and I was there, and I, I was with you at the Red Sea, and I'll be there at Sinai, and I'll be there at the end of time." And so, at the end of time, it, what what happens to all the righteous people who die? And you know, they, they they sort of wait in the underworld to be able to participate in the in, in the the renewed kingdom. That's where you get this whole notion of the the, the 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 renewal of 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 god's heavenly kingdom at the end of time and, and resurrection of the dead but then there's the cycle of the individual mortality and and because we have this whole thing about olam haba being the end of time in history we've lost touch with what what one kabbalist calls olam ha-nishamot the world of souls Nachmanides, who was a who was a medieval philosopher says when Maimonides is talking about Olam Haba he's talking about that messianic world at the end of time. And I want to talk about something different. I want to talk about olam han the world of souls. So this conversation that we're doing is on individual immortality and the individual afterlife of the world of souls. It's, it's less the messianic piece in there. But I recognize that's another part of history. And I think, I think because the two are confused together, we have trouble understanding that. Anyone else? Comments? Questions? Okay. So, I'll just quickly do the life review, but I want to do, I want to, yeah,
0: where's it, yeah, please. Was it your uncle who was Jonah?
1: Yeah, Uncle Jonas.
0: Uncle Jonas. That's an interesting uh, anecdote, Rabbi, because it can help answer the claim that charges the following. When people feel a presence or have that kind of vision, they themselves wanted to have it. Whereas with your relative, he was anti religious, yeah, right. so it was almost like a double blind study, right. and he nonetheless had
1: right. right. the There was, there was um, a cousin, no, there was the, the, the husband of my wife's, my, my father in law's first cousin's husband was also one of these far brenta atheists, you know, he was anti religious, and you know. And so my wife went to see a psychic, she did his funeral. And it, she went to see a psychic and said, like, your Uncle Ned is really confused because he didn't think anything was happening. And then, you know, all of, all of a sudden, he said, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> Again, I think we have to do our own meaning making. I, I, you know, I, I, all I want to do is say, at, at least understand that we do have these beliefs, however you value them or not... I think the important piece of this, and 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 if you sleep through the rest, you know, this is what I'm going to say at the end, or maybe I won't need to say it to anything. Say it now. I think the importance of this is that you have conversations with each other about your own end of life wishes and what do you want and, and, and how do you want to handle this and you, you think about ethical wills and what's the, what's the legacy you want to pass on. I think that that we need to take death out of the closet. You know, in, you know, listen. I've gotten in trouble for this, but whatever. Actually, I should wait. I, I got to be here. I got to be around Phoenix all weekend, and I shouldn't get in trouble so quickly. You know, America was founded by the Taliban of Protestant England. You know, we sort of made the Pilgrims into these sweet little guys with weird hats and funny shoes, but they were right-wing religious fundamentalists that got kicked out of England, and there was this phobia around death, and 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 and. And our Jewish life in America in the last 150 years has grown up pickled in the brine of Protestantism in America, which has this phobia around death. In in, in, in Jewish life, we don't have this fear about death. When do we? You know, we say we say Yizker. When do we say it? we say it on Yom Kippur? We say it on Sukkot in the middle of you know Zman in We say we say it in the middle of Pesach. We say it at Shavuot. So we we honor the connection between living and dead very openly. We we break a glass at the wedding. So we want to use this to talk on the city. Okay, off my soapbox and on to the next deck. Okay, so eventually it said that the soul, le- you know, there's, a, there's the life review. I'm not, I'm not even going to read that one. Eventually there's a soul leaving behind the attachment to the physical world and another scene opens. It's called Gehenna. Um, I need somebody who's a little bit um, Shakespearean. Can I give you uh, the next one? Thank you. So re- here's, Ge- here's Gehenna.
0: There are five kinds of punishment in Gehenna, and Isaiah saw them all. He entered the second compartment, and he saw two men hanging by their tongues. And he said, Oh, you who unveils the hidden, reveal to me the secret of this. He answered, These are the men who slander Therefore, they are thus punished. He entered the third compartment, and he saw their men hanging by their organs, by their wills. He said, oh, you who unveils the hidden, reveal to me the secret of this. And he answered, these are the men who neglected their own wives and committed adultery with the daughters of Israel.
1: So I use this one for pedagogical purposes. I don't use it for pastoral purposes, right? So, you know, this, this is the Jewish Dante stuff. There's a lot, a lot of Jewish Dante stuff around. It's fascinating stuff. So here's how I want to introduce it. Gehenna has something to do with purification of the unresolved emotional experiences of life. Okay? If, imagine somebody comes up to you, you know, and kicks you in the shins and smacks you across the face... And, you know, and, and you're like, it's your friend Sam, you're like really, really mad at him. And I come up to you six months later and say, whatever happened to you and your friend Sam? You Sam, let me tell you, I'm so mad at him, right? What, what's the point? Is that emotions persist long after the initial point of contact. But we're very good at repressing emotions. That's one of the things, right? So you could have a fight with somebody or your significant other, and then you know, you, you get up the next morning and, and the alarm goes off and you grab your cup of coffee and then later in the day you get a, a backache because you feel unsupported or you get a pain in the neck because they're, you know, a pain in the neck or Louise Hay who does stuff on, on, on mind-body healing or you get a bladder infection because you're pissed off, right? <laughs> so we know from psychosomatic medicine that the body holds emotion and if you were to do an x-ray you could see my bone structure if you were to do an MRI you could see my deep tissue structure imagine we could do an emosiogram so we see here there's a lot of anger because this is where we fold it in our jaw right one of my friends had TMJs because he like he just left his business and he was angry for 20 years working in his business right and then here we hold grief and here we hold shame, and there's a lot of emotions held in the body. It may be that in death, all of the S.H. that's under the rug, one has to have what they call in the 12-step program, the fearless moral inventory. So I go through life, and it's not like, oh, I feel terrible that I wasn't nice to the clerk at Walmart. It's really, who's our mattering map? Who are the people with whom we share love and connectiveness? And what are the ways in which I might have failed in my attempt to be the best person I can be? So imagine what it might look like to have sort of a post-mortem looking at yourself in the mirror completely unadorned, not having to apologize or deny or avoid, but really look at all of the ways you might have shot from the lip and were verbally abusive to people you loved. It might feel like hanging from the tongue. What would it be to look at yourself in the mirror and look at your life story and see the ways you acted with impropriety in your intimate relationships and you hurt people you loved? It might feel like hanging from mm. So all of a sudden, this text, doesn't speak about a, ge- a physical experience, but it speaks about a kind of psycho emotional or psycho spiritual experience. So, Gehenna for the rabbis is a kind of process of purifying and, and, and cleansing the unresolved stuff of life. Now, Gehenna for the rabbis is not permanent. What's the Wesley maximum length of time in Gehenna? Twelve months, and how long do we say Kaddish?
0: 11.
1: eleven months. Why do we say it eleven when it's twelve months? Nobody's that bad, right? Though I have to tell you, I'm a bereavement counselor. I have people come to me, and say, my mother should have gotten twenty-four months,
0: you
1: know, right? So, so the rabbis understood that, that. That, but the rabbis understood that it's a kind of cleansing and healing process, and 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 a process of letting go, and and so interesting, it corresponds with Kaddish. The belief is that our act of saying Kaddish redeems the soul from Gehenna. What does that mean? What? Well, you know, you see, I think think we need to understand what that might mean in a a more um, contemporary language. So actually, I have this um, I call it my my kadish gehenna rap, but I have to do it without a mic. So you're not recording me on this one, right? No. You're recording me on this one? Yes. Okay. So this so this is my understanding, this is my understanding of what it means to say our act of saying Kaddish redeems the soul from Gehenna. So I'm gonna do this as a son to a father, but you can think of it in in lots of different ways. First day, guy shows up, St. Kaddish, and goes, You son of a bitch. You didn't leave a life insurance policy. You liked your work more than your kids, and you were a nasty man to live with. And now I have to say these stupid words that don't have anything to do with Kaddish. Rabbi, I bet you you met some people like that along the way in, in your years in the rabbin. Right? And the response comes back and says, and you, you were not an easy kid to live, to raise. You know, you, you were always so busy with your friends. You never had time for your family. You, you, know, you, were, you were not an easy kid to raise. Right? And it, it's three months. It's three and a half months. You'd get off, you'd get off. You know what, Dad? I didn't know you. I had no idea who you really were. And the response comes back and says, you know what? I didn't know who I was. What did I know? I was 20 when I got married. I was 21 when I had my kids. You know, I've had a few months since I died to think about things. And, may, you know, I'm beginning to see my life with a little bit different kind of a vantage point and, and, and perspective. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's six months. It's have. you know what, Dad? We never said I love you in our family. We just never, ever said I love you. And the response, it says, you're right. I, I love you, and I never said it. And, I, and I, have a lot of, I have a lot of regret about that. You know, and I, I, I'm really sorry for some of the things that I did do and some of the things I didn't do. And it's eight months, it's nine months, you know, and it's, it's on a, it's, it's, it's not a timeline, but it's a process. You know, today, Dad, you, because you know what, I, I just, I miss you. I just really, really miss you. And the response comes back to, look, you know, I miss you a lot. I missed you, and, 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 and I hope you can find a way to forgive me. You know, I, 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 I made a lot of mistakes, and I miss you. It's the last day of St. Kaddish, you know, and I don't have any illusion that it always fits into a category, but it's, again, it's a process. You know what, Dad? I love you, and I forgive you. And the response comes back and says, listen, take what I gave you and make the best of it. And what was lousy, let it go. And I bless you in your own life. And is that a process of redeeming souls from Gehenna? See, I don't know. And it doesn't matter whether Gehenna exists or not. What I want to do is take it metaphorically and say it really works for people to be able to say, what's the the incomplete conversation you want to have with your loved one? That's when, when somebody comes to me for counseling, one of the first things they say, what's the conversation in your heart and your mind? Now, of course, I get, I get people who come to me, because I just, you know, you write a book on afterlife, you get calls asking people to do an exorcism. You know, I mean, I get, I, you, you have no idea some of the calls that, 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 that I get. But, but you know, it, it, it's a very poignant process to see that our tradition suggests that in the process of saying Kaddish, it's, it, there seems to be some kind of very fertile process of healing that's taking place. And I think that's what's important. What's not, what's not important to me, the soul goes through some process of Gehenna and, you know, and, and, and the worms get in. No, but what's important to me for the bereavement process is to understand that there's still that possibility of healing and same thing with, 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 you know, we used to, in Canada, we, you know, when, when, when uh, there used to be this, this advertisement growing up about they wanted the construction industry to continue in the winter. So they would say, you know, why wait for spring? Do it now. You know, and, and so why wait for Gehenna? Do it now. Who are the people to whom we need to go home and say, I love you and I forgive you? What's the stash of unresolved painful relationships that we're carrying. Because I think the implications of the afterlife teaching is that we want to create tikkunim. We want to create healing stuff in, 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 in our relationships. And, and in a second, I'm going to talk about Gan Eden. I told you I wouldn't leave you stuck in, in, in Gehenna. The rabbi said three times the amount about Gehenna than they did about Gan Eden. Why? The, wait, just hold the question a second. Why? Because they were ethicists. They wanted people to live moral lives. You go to, you, go to uh, you know, I know you're an ethicist there. You go to the, the um, index of Ginsburg's Legends of the Jews, and he uses hell and heaven. And there's literally three times the amount of references to hell as there are to heaven. And just looking at that, it taught me something. They weren't so much metaphysical. Physic- they were some of them were meta- you know some of them were metaphysics. I mean, ph- physicians, and there were shamanic rabbis. There were some you know pretty far out dudes. But they basically wanted people to live right relationship, and that's that's the bottom line in all of this. Is if it helps us live our right relationship, then we live life more fully, and we die more gracefully. I mean, that's sort of what I think I try to extract out of all of this. Okay, I can do a little more on Gan Eden and then Shor HaKaim, and then we'll come in for a landing and, and to take some more questions. But before, I, anyone want to comment on that? Yeah, please. I
2: have a question. Um, you skipped over life review, and I understand the relationship uh, to what you just discussed. What's, what's the relationship of all of this to the high holidays, and, and the notion of, you know, you're, you're evaluated every year in some sense, but you have the ability to change your conduct. And, seek repentance, so I guess my question is, what do the Jews believe, or we all understand what the non-Jewish world believes are the consequences of a bad life, bad ethical behavior, or what's the relationship between, what, what do the Jews believe in their mind about the consequences of life? Well,
1: you know, the... the it's like I, 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 I'm distracted by your Apple Watch, you know. I mean, I want to program it to, 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 to be able to say to you at the end of every day, so have you done Shuba today? Have you done Shuba today? Because, the, you know, that's what the Kriyat Shema Al-Hamitah is, that's, what, you know, the, the prayers, and that's what the high holidays are, and that's what Shabbos is. You know, we, we, we have a rule at my house that, that that no matter who's pissed off at whom, come Shabbos, we, you know, we let it go. So we have a whole technology for living... Living life relationally well, and so that so the, you know the, the 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 bottom line is that we want to be able to say at the end of d- days, I did the best I can, I loved as much as I was able to, and now that you know these are the these are you know this these are my mayavasrime this is my hundred hundred twenty years that God has given me, and now I, I, I'm ready to go. Um, you know when when my when my um I will we'll get too far field but with this I won't remember where I'm going back when my father's mother died my father was a very you know he wasn't a reflective man you know and I said you know I was already doing bereavement work when she died and I asked him you know how you doing and he said look I was a good mother I I was a good she was a good mother and I was a good son I didn't think she was such a good mother but he did you know so it like it it was very poignant for me to hear my father say you know, she did what she could, and I did what I could. And so the Jewish way is that we're always given the opportunity to do tshuva, and that we don't, we don't need a divine intermediary to be able to do that for us. So, but And so the life review, at, you know, at the end of one's life, one sees the, the panoramic vision of all, all one's deeds. We see life as it really was, and... You know, I was in a community in where on, on Friday night we would do a review of the week. You know, actually on our Shabbos table we asked, you know, what was the highlight of the week? What do you, what do you need to let go of for the week? And what was the highlight of the week? So we always have the chance to do that. On just going, say going. One thing. I, it's, it's
2: a stunning revelation to me what you're talking about. I was very close to my grandmother. Uh-huh. My grandmother was dying, and she was on her deathbed, and she started doing things from the. She was 80 years old and she mumbled everything from the beginning of her life to the end. And it was like, you know, I attributed it to something else, but, you know, it was almost like she was reviewing her life and people were coming to visit her and she talked about things that she hadn't talked about in my whole life.
1: Well, you know, we have that phrase in our culture I saw my life flash before my eyes. Right. Um, in the near death experiences, people see the life review. I'm, I'm sorry I skipped over that, 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 that text. And, and um, hang on, we, we, where, where, where was I going I to go with that? But, you know, the, the sense that, that we can sort of see it all. Oh, yeah, I know what I was saying. That, that in death, the black box recorder goes on auto-replay. And it may be when people are dying slowly that it goes on auto-replay in advance because I've often seen people who are kind of reliving their life. So what's what's the what's the real life implications of that? People say, you know, I'm going to see so and so, they're, you know, they're end stage cancer. I don't know what to say. Talk to them about their life. You know, invite people to share about their life experience. I was able to get my father and my mother on 8 hours of video towards, you know, the last years of their life. There's somewhere there's a scene I got to go find because it's on VHS where I'm sitting there with my father. I still have a black beard in those years. And my son, who is now 27, must have been four or five. And you see the three of us on the video. And I'd like to go freeze frame that and, and, and get that photograph. Yeah, so I have that preserved in time. If you, know, if you can get people to do their life story, to do their, to do their life review, I think that's the implications of all this. Good. So thank you for not letting me uh, let go of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I will. Please. Okay, so hold that because let me let me go right here. Let me let me let me let me do this last two phrases and then, yeah, and then I, I, just, yeah. well, I got ten minutes. Okay, so I, I'm going to end with your question, but let, let, let's, uh, with the end of Gehenna, the the personality begins to dissolve, if you will. Remember in the story, he's sitting in between Gehenna and Gan That's actually described as lower Gan There's a place where it said there's another life review. There's three life reviews. The first one is, as before we're born, the angel comes and touches us on the lip. And we, you know we see our whole life in advance and then the angel touches us here. Then we see at the hour of our death. And then there's another place where we see the meaning of this life from the standpoint of multiple incarnations. Ah, that's why I had to suffer in this lifetime. That's why I had to be married to that person. That's the way in which the story had to play out. So at some point, the... The experience of Gun Eden. Again, the rabbi said more about Gehenna than about Gun Eden, and I'm a psychologist and trying to, you know, sort of see the practical stuff. I think a lot of practical stuff is the earlier sheva stuff stuff. Uh, what Gan Eden is: how much time have you put away in your spiritual bank account? How much time have you invested? Because Gun Eden is a harvesting of our own spiritual potentialities. So do you have a mo- enough money in your bank account to have a Motel 6 or uh, a Best Western, or actually the Kabbalists would call it a Best Western, or uh, do you, ha- uh, can you get a Hilton, or how about a, uh, oh, I love some of those penthouse apartments in Sedona today, they were pretty far out, right? So, you know, how mu- how much have you invested in your spiritual bank account? Because there are different realms of Ghanaian, Aiden and, 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 and sort of, there are soul gatherings, so there'll be like a Hadassah realm in Ghana, and there'll be a, you know, what's this, Temple Soleil, right? There'll be be a congregational realm in there. Eventually, the deceased become available to us as intercessors. There's a whole, we've lost touch with a whole Eastern European tradition. There were actually prayer books that were said to the deceased to intervene in our lives in a beneficent way, you know, like like they had that with Baba Sali and with some of these, the, you know, these these Kabbalistic uh, Spartan Kabbalists to, to 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 be able to do that. But and you see it in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, from a Sarah comes through, and so the, the 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 grandmothers, their 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 role was particularly around children and shiduchim, right? So so th- we have the sense here, and so Yorshite. Is where we, in a, in a sense, we tune into the the realm of the the deceased. Um, I, I'm remembering this story. When I was a kid, and I would go out, my father would fold a five dollar bill, and he sort of slipped me five. You know, he wouldn't say very much. He would just like give me a five dollar bill on the way out the door. It was. The anniversary of his death, which I think also came out around his birthday, and I got out of my van in front of Starbucks, and there was a $10 bill on the ground folded up. So, A, I got a raise, <laughs> which was kind of neat, you know, cost a living. But, but then, a, a couple of years ago, I was, I was telling this story at a congregation in Ohio on, on Friday night, and the next morning, um, somebody came in and said, your father was there because I found the $5 bill and $10 bill at the parking lot. So, you know, I don't know about these things, but people, again, have these uncanny kinds of experiences. Yeah, please.
0: If Jews are forbidden from speaking directly to the dead, mm-hmm. why is there a tradition or is it a response that you would build a citation for? It's, you know, I'm, it's... A begging forgiveness... Of the departed of yeah. the, the The whole piece about communing with the dead
1: in biblical tradition is very complex. Because you got Saul going to call the witch of Endor, but having to go in disguise. So on one hand, there's a condemnation about it. On the other hand, he's actually doing it. So it's a longer conversation. It is in chapter two of the book or chapter three of the book. Those Folks who were communicating with the dead were also hanging out with the goddess. There was the Witch of Endor is not a solitary practitioner. There was a whole guild of these kinds of women practitioners, and they were also the ones who were communicating with Asherah and all of that. So it's problematic, but we do. You know, the Hasidic rabbis would tune into the to, to the world of the dead, and we we have that.
0: So, do you believe it's effective to beg forgiveness of the departed at their grave?
1: Well, I don't want to go to the realm of belief or not. Is it a practice? Yes. Was was it tradi- in, in Sephardic um, funerals? Do we do a the, mechila the at the grave? Yes. Does the to go go out on, on, on the sixth of Adar and go to the graves of people who were buried and ask for forgiveness? They were doing that. They were certainly doing that in Prague. They were certainly doing that in, in, in a lot of the early modern chevrakadishas. So is it part of our our heritage? Yes. Yeah, please. You said about know, more like
0: Shintoism.
1: Yeah, well it's in the it's in the art scroll Sidur. It's sort of it's Borough Park Shintoism. <laughs> you know like the, the tradition of wait don't pull up give me two more minutes. The tradition of the ancestors in Shintoism. It's it 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 it's it's in Native American tradition. Well but are your site blacks? You know, we every synagogue I go into, you see all these great Yorshite plaques. I didn't do this here today. Usually, when I do an afterlife talk, I go up to the to go up to the Yurzeit board first just to like ask for permission, you know, from from the ancestors. So we have that tradition. We we have those, and, and it's it's sort of our the Americanization of our Judaism that we that 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 that, that we've lost touch with that. But I have this wonderful um, family photograph. There's a picture of me. I'm, uh, I'm born in July, and this is, this is my first Passover Seder, and I'm in my great-grandmother's arms and my grandparents and my parents, so there's four generations, and that's where I light Shabbos candles, and on the other side, there's another of the little place where we light candles, there's a picture of my mother's family, and that, so, so we want to be able to remember those were named, you know, you're all named after people, or many of you are. So, you know, those ancestors are around too. Okay, uh, I want to go to Gilgul reincarnation. In some places, Gan Aden is the end of the journey. The rabbis did not have to standardize belief, they had to standardize practice. They had to know that the Jews in Babylonia and in, and, and in Palestine and in the south of France were lighting Shabbos candles relative to the setting of the sun at the same time and that, and that they were reading the Megillah relative to the, to, the, to the cycle of the moon. But if this one said Gehenna looked like this and that one said Gehenna looked like that and this one said there are seven names of Gan and then there's another Midrash that has different seven names of Ganadin, it didn't matter. They weren't. There was a lot of room for Midrashic improvisation. But in some places, Gan Eden is the end, and in others, there's another realm called Sror Hachayim. It's sometimes translated as the, the bundle of life. I call it the source of life. It's mission control for souls. So some texts talk about how the soul returns to Sroor Hachayim, and then it gets its mission. In some places, it gets, it gets its call for the next incarnation. So where do we see this thing about Sur hachaim? Where where does that appear? In the al Male rachamim It's there, and also on the on, you ever see five Hebrew letters on a tombstone? Tehaini, yeah. matot tzoror, but ha hachaim. May her soul be end up in the bond of life. Please continue services on page 472. <laughs> you know, we sort of, sorry. You know, we do that very platitudinously, but it's understood to be another realm in the in the afterlife where souls go back to and in some cases the soul merges with gufa de malka the body of the king and in other places the soul also gets its message for for another incarnation so gilgul is part of jewish tradition from the third from from the 12th 13th century onward and is part of the tradition and Nobody has yet done in English what I did with the afterlife. I took a lot of the afterlife stuff and put it all together in one book. There's a lot, a lot of reincarnation material. We'll have to bring you back next year for doing the reincarnation
0: <laughs> action, right? Yeah, please. So the
1: theory that was people will be reincarnated. No, the Kabbalists downplayed the notion of, of, of resurrection because, because they were they, they, had, they put more emphasis on... On, 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 re, on reincarnation. It's not, it's not reincarnation, it's resurrection. Reincarnation is still within the individual cycle. I lived, this in this incarnation, I've lived out semchanes in this body, in this time, in this history, but there's a certain kind of um, coagulation of soul experience that then gets re- and animated in another time, in another place, in another circumstance. I mean, it, it's a longer conversation, but uh, you know, I, I I was talking about it earlier this evening. Some woman comes up to me yesterday after a talk and says, you know, I I was born in 1948. I wasn't raised Jewish, and I was having Holocaust memories from very early on. And and when I was learning some Jewish stuff, it was all it's all seemed very familiar to me. And there's people have written stuff about souls that are re- reincarnated from the Holocaust. It's another whole phenomenon that that sort of is more than we're going to do between now and the time that that we pull the plug. So here so let, let me let me let me let me sort of at least do my summary and then we'll see if there's some time for any more questions. In okay, so Tzur HaChaim also corresponds with the Yisker. I just want to say that piece and and whereas these are inherent in the text for 7 days the soul goes back and forth, there's something about about Rabbi Akiva of Gehenna, redeeming souls from Kaddish, the, 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 from Gehenna, the uh, the the, the, Yart said, the Hasidim say the Neshama, and Aliyah, the soul should ascend higher and higher. Yisker, I take from the stories of a woman comes into synagogue saying, Dear Ma, I'm trying to have a child, please help me, and the next year she comes back and she has a new child and it looks like the deceased grandmother. And, you know, so there's a whole genre of literature about sort of people being reincarnated into families. But I'm not going to get all of this, you know. And and my daughter was, um, my daughter might have turned me in, if I was a witch in a past life, she turned me into the (laughs) authorities. Okay, so A, there's a lot more material in tradition than we have been taught. B, there's a connection between afterlife teachings and our Jewish ritual practices. And C, and here I think this is the essence of it all, between the world of the dead and the world of the living there's a window and not a wall. Between the world of the dead and the world of the living there's a window and not a wall. And in silent moments of reflection and in our moments of prayer and through dreams and through meaningful coincidences and those things, those windows, windows open. And Judaism has always had that sense that somehow there's an interconnectedness. And that, that the bottom line is that those relationships in some way persist in ways that give our lives a sense of connectedness and meaning. That's certainly what I have discovered in learning about Jewish views of the afterlife.
0: So thank you. <laughs>